there's been a particular uh, prayer for the city that's been helpful for me. So um, before we start and hear from Chris and Steve, let's pray. Heavenly Father, in your word, you have given us a vision of that holy city to which the nations of the world bring their glory. Behold and visit, we pray, the cities of the earth, especially our city of Birmingham. Renew the ties of mutual regard which form our civic life. Send us honest and able leaders. Enable us to eliminate poverty, prejudice, and oppression, that peace may prevail with righteousness and justice with order, and that men and women from different cultures and with differing talents may find with one another the fulfillment of their humanity. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So, um, <clears throat> today we're having a conversation with Steve and Chris, Steve Marsh and Chris Copeland. Um, we're considering, uh, we started this last week and this is kind of part two, we're thinking about uh, how the Advent has a heart for the city of Birmingham. Since we've heard the good news of Jesus Christ and been freed from ourselves, um, we have a heart for others, uh, a heart for our neighbors in our city. Um, so last week, I just talked a little bit about Jeremiah 29, um, about the letter uh, that the exiles in Babylon, so uh, the Israelites were exiled uh, in Babylon, and Jeremiah said to them, basically, seek the welfare of the city, seek its prosperity, uh, seek the shalom, right? Seek the full flourishing of the city, uh, uh, of the people that you are uh, surrounded with. Seek their uh, spiritual flourishing, their emotional flourishing, their financial flourishing. Um, so that really raises the question, um, if we're to hear that word to us today here in Birmingham, um, how does the Christian faith intersect with what I do from Monday to Friday? Um, and I just want to make a quick comment, and then I want to uh, basically pass it over to Steve and Chris mostly. Um, if you look at Genesis, right, uh, I believe it's Genesis 1.28, um, the verses, so it's after he created uh, Adam and Eve, it says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the flesh of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So I want us to see in that, uh, a, a lot of theologians have called this the creation mandate. So what I want us to see in that is that there in Genesis, in the creation account, Adam and Eve are called to be vocational, uh, developmental, creative beings, right? They are to live in harmony with, with God and with one another, and they are blessed by God. They are given everything. They are given creation to rule it, to subdue it, to tend to it, um, and to work it, to, to, uh, to build upon the materials that God has given them. And if you just think of the Bible as a whole, we go from the garden there in Genesis, and where do we end up in Revelation at the end? The conclusion is a city, right? So it goes from the development of a garden to a city. So with that in mind, um, since, uh, you know, I'm uh, mainly in church work and reading theology, I thought it would be helpful to get um, some input here from Stephen Chris, um, who's done a lot of thinking, honestly, about their faith and work and could teach me, still could teach me a lot. Um, so, so Stephen Chris, 
tell us um, tell us about your vocations, um, maybe the training you received for that, um, how you felt called into that, uh, however you want to steer that. So can we do something first since we're such a small, intimate group? Maybe sure. uh, folks just say names and what kind of work you're doing, and then what drew you to a class about faith and work? So as we're a small, intimate group, maybe have a little bit of conversation. Uh, Andy Webb and Investment Consulting. Um, and honestly, I was just, I, I thought this would be, I didn't even realize this was going to be about Birmingham, so I think that's, that's pretty awesome. Uh, I was thinking, I know Tim Keller's coming to speak here in a couple weeks. Yeah, November. He's, uh-huh. he's going to be speaking about work, so we're going to start kind of building, building up on that. The introductory material? <coughs> yeah. 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 yeah, exactly. <laughs> Good, yeah. Thanks. I'm Charles Howard. Um, I'm an engineering manager, kind of. <laughs> I come from the design world, but nowadays I do engineering, and um, I live downtown, so the city is like here for me. This is my neighborhood, so yeah, it's always interesting conversations. You're invested in it, somewhat. Yeah. <laughs> Good. Yes. Okay. Virginia Brown, special education teacher here in Birmingham. All right. Um, and I came because this is something that we've kind of been talking about in a 20s, 30-something group that I've been a part of, and so I just want to learn more about it. What school are you in? At Oak Mountain okay. Intermediate School. Um, I'm Gunnar Owens, and um, I'm also sort of in special education, but I have a certification in behavior analysis, so mm-hmm. it's called the BCBA. Um, and I work specifically with children with autism and, and children who have behavior problems. And so right now what I'm doing is I see children at the clinic and then I also go into school systems where um, regular special ed teachers are having a super difficult time and I would be brought in to consult and sort of train them on what to do and how to do it. Um, and I am also a mom, so I do that, the BCBA work part-time and um, I'm a stay-at-home mom the other times. Um, And I guess I'm here, what drew me to this is that lately, balancing that has become difficult and I feel like the work that I do is really good and you can always um, justify doing more and more of it, right, and taking more and more of it on, I guess, but um, then you kind of get stuck in that place of like, well, am I doing this for me or am I doing this for the Lord? Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's kind of a lot, but... So when I saw something about work, I thought, you know, I need to kind of get back in that place of um, what is he, how much does he want me to take on versus how much do I feel like I need to take on to appease everybody around me. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. That really resonates with the last six months of my experience. So thank you for what y'all are doing, especially because my son has Asperger's, my oldest son, and he was first diagnosed in the... um, Homewood school system, I guess back in 2006, 2007, and had his first IEP, and so, I mean, just tremendous things have happened through the intervention of a lot of folks in his life, but especially folks in the school system, so really excited about what you are doing. Get the door for us. Thanks, Sue. Um, Well, Brent, I guess I'll answer your question uh, now that I've deflected. For yeah, so the question minutes. again is uh, <laughs> tell us about your vocation, how you've sure. been called to that. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I work at Regents Bank. Uh, I'm in the corporate banking group. We've 
bank, uh, different kinds of businesses from large to small. Uh, I manage a team of five that does strategic planning for the corporate banking group and then also uh, data analytics. Uh, so my background really over the past 17 years has been in, uh, in banking. I started out uh, as a commercial banker, as, a, as an underwriter actually, uh, moved into real estate banking, did the kind of client-facing thing for a while, and I just kind of moved around uh, as needed, kind of as assigned, uh, moved into different roles. And, uh, you know, I don't think that I really ever had a moment where I felt a call into banking. I think that uh, it was one of those things where, you know, I graduated from college, I had a, an economics and Spanish double major, I had no idea what I was going to do with it. Uh, at the time I was living in Chattanooga, I'm from Chattanooga and had grown up at a church that's very much like Advent, downtown, historic church, and it so happened that a lot of the folks that I knew there uh, at that church were bankers, and they said to me, hey Steve, you ought to come and talk to us about banking, and it was one of those kind of moments in the economy, it was 1999, where, you know, there was just tremendous demand uh, for basically anybody coming out of college with a pulse that could, you know, fill a role, and so uh, it was a great time to step into something like that, and I was fortunate to, uh, I think, start off into something that ended up becoming a, uh, a career, so I kind of fell into it in a sense. Okay. Oh, so a lot of your questions today for me are going to have kind of a twofold answer because I'm in the middle of a vocation change, so to speak. Um, my background is education, though. I started um, teaching high school at Vestavia High School. I did that for 10 years, nine years. Um, then my wife and I moved to New York, and I was going to try to have a career transition into publishing, and that did not work um, because I got a job two years into the process. I got a job offer at a school and we needed the income, we needed the benefits, and I couldn't you know, justify spending another year. So I went back to teach at a, a Jewish private school that was uh, fourth grade. It was a big change from high school, but a really great experience. Um, then we were kind of laying the groundwork for making a life in New York, trying to figure out how we could do it and have kids, and my wife got a job offer at Sanford. So we decided uh, to move back to Birmingham, and the big question then was, are you, go are you just gonna teach? What are you gonna do? Um, that led to, there's probably too much backstory, but I decided to take the transition, which was kind of a natural transition, um, and the move to pursue a business idea that I had talked about with friends, and it had always been in the vein of this would be really cool in Birmingham. Um, but once we decided to move, my friends were encouraging me, like, why don't you actually do it? And it was like, oh, I can't do that. You know, it's not, that's not my background in education. I don't have any business doing business. Um, but the more we looked into it, the more we started seeing there really was a hole in the market uh, here. Uh, and so we decided to pursue it. And so right now I'm working on opening a boutique spirits and wine retail store in the city, which is very different from teaching fourth grade. Um, <laughs> the joke that I've been making with it is that teaching fourth grade, you had to drink so much to get through it. But I became an expert and now I want to... That's actually not true. I love fourth grade. Um, <laughs> So it's these two sort of things. As far as like calling and getting into it, um, I got into education for all the wrong reasons. I saw dangerous minds, like in, when I was a senior in high school, and you get inspired. Um, and then it was Coolio, wasn't it? It was, uh, yeah. yeah. No, it was a, yeah, it was a Coolio, it was cool, yeah, the yeah. Gangster's Paradise, right? Yeah. Michelle Pfeiffer up there helping those <laughs> kids. Um, and so that just kind of was that inspiring thing that lingered. And then when I was a junior in college, 
I was majoring in English and kind of thinking about what path to take, and uh, that was the year Columbine happened. And so that kind of sealed the whole, like, I think I need to go in and teach. Um, it was really interesting, though, because I would say at that time, at the, you know, at the wise old age of, like, 19 that I was at the time, or 20, I was like, if those kids had just had a teacher that noticed or a teacher that cared. And that was kind of one of the prevailing narratives about Columbine. Um, years, years later, it was when we were in New York, I read a book on Columbine by a journalist that did extensive research. And basically his thing was that that didn't have anything to do with it. It was mental illness. And I was like, the whole reason I went into education was a lie. Um, but I, I loved it and I, I felt like I was good at it. And even in New York, um, when, I had, when I gave up the dream of going into publishing to teach, um, it was okay because education wasn't something that I was leaving because I didn't like it. But as far as calling it, I never felt like a call mm -hmm. to do it. Um, it was just kind of, I'm majoring in English, what do I do? I'm inspired by this. And I think I would want to do it, but I never felt it was a call. And honestly, um, I was wrestling, I think, with a lot of what a lot of Christians wrestle with at that age is, I really should be doing some kind of missions work. And if I, you know, I'm settling by teaching. So, yeah, there wasn't, right. really, a, there wasn't really a call. Right. And there's okay. not really a call into spirits. It's a... Yeah, the, the opportunity. opportunity. Yeah, that, basically, you know, Tim Keller talks about your calling is three things: this opportunity, affinity, and ability, and all three of those need to be met. And that's the, um, uh, you know, I, I have a, you know, there's there's a lot of things I think we all would like to do, and we might even be good at, but the opportunity never presents itself for this particular store. Um, I feel like those three things fell into place. Um, so, um, I guess in that sense, you could say it's a calling, but. Right. I don't, it's just, it's, it's what it was at the time. It could have easily been something. If we had moved to any other city, we wouldn't be doing this because the hole in the market is unique to Birmingham. If we were moving to Nashville, then I'd be probably teaching or something, so. Sure, sure. So talk to us, um, so I quoted from Genesis 1, 28 earlier, um, which theologians call the cultural mandate or the creation mandate. Um, well, a lot of us, I know I do uh, lots of times, I sometimes feel like I'm uh, to get out of bed just to make money, just, just because it's a job. So talk to us a little bit about that. Um, do, you see your, uh, do you see your job, your vocation, just as a job, or do you, do you see it as part of a larger creation mandate that God has given to us? Yeah, I, th I think for, for me, if I think about banking and sort of the benefit, the cultural benefit or value in it, I mean, I guess I could look at it, um, you know, sort of from a very macro level to a very micro level, and to preface it, I remember in college reading through a, uh, a book that had all the different professions, and it was the Princeton Guide to, you know, the different jobs, and they had this little graphic, and it was, um, you know, a guy holding a money bag with little angel wings mm -hmm. and how big his money bag was was based on how much money you can make in it and the size of the angel wings was you know based on the cultural or the societal benefit of what you did and I remember the banker had like the smallest angel wings mm -hmm. on him so um, <laughs> so but I mean I do look at it and you know I think at a very macro level um, you know kind of the it's a wonderful life uh, George Bailey scene where everybody comes into the bank and he explains, you know, the banking sector. And I mean, we take people's savings, we deploy it as loans. And I mean, really, uh, what we're doing is we're 
in our case with businesses, I mean, we're helping those businesses to be able to expand and grow and uh, hopefully hire more people. And start a spirits shop? Yeah, start a spirits <laughs> shop, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, you know, those individual depositors wouldn't go to Chris and say, you know, hey, here's our money, but a bank is able to assess that risk and, um, you know, put some guardrails around it and say, okay, we're gonna take that capital and deploy it over here to, uh, to help what you're doing. Uh, I think at more of a, you know, kind of maybe not 30,000, but 10,000 feet level, um, you know, our part of the bank, the, the corporate banking group is about 2,000 people and you know my group is really in a support role to those seven businesses and those two thousand people and so i do think about well hey if i do what i'm doing well if my team performs well then we're really helping all those folks succeed and you know put food on on uh, their tables and so forth um, and then just a very micro level i mean for me the relationships with uh, my peers and especially my direct reports is something that uh, I think is a, an opportunity to have uh, a beneficial impact on people's lives. I mean, your boss, if you think about it, can have just a huge outsized influence for the good or for the bad. I know I've had bosses that have been in both camps, um, but I take that part of it pretty seriously. Sure. I mean, I had it easy as an educator. You, you guys know, like, uh, the whole question of am I getting out of bed to work or for the money? You're not getting out of bed for the money. Right. Because um, it's not a very high-paying profession. So you get out because you love it. But it does, uh, there are a lot of colleagues that, uh, over time, you kind of get ground down by the red tape and the bureaucracy in education. And then you have to say, is the, is the, do I really love it anymore What's, um, with that? Um, so... I mean, if I look at the question again, um, the larger cultural mandate. Yeah, do you see yourself as part of a larger creation mandate? I, I do now. I mean, you know, I've talked about my experience in New York. Um, definitely before moving to New York, um, I did not necessarily see it. Um, I had a belief that your work had to have some secondary benefit that was good. So, and as an educator, you're educating kids. That's obviously good. My wife's a social worker, so she's helping, you know, kids and families that live in poverty. So it's kind of easy to, for us to feel like what our vocations were were, were good and part of what God was doing. Um, when I got in a, it was a fellows program in New York that I went through through Redeemer Church called the Gotham Fellowship. And we were in there with, um, you know, bankers and artists and, um, uh, you know, just a wide range of professions. And it was interesting that the helping professions we're not initially struggling with this question of is my work good? Is it glorifying to God? And the finance guys, obviously, uh, obviously, honestly, the finance guys were the ones that would really struggle. I had a lot of friends that worked on Wall Street, and they would say, "Man, I wish I could do something good like you're doing." And they would say the kind of like what you said. I heard so many times like we're what we do is we ensure the free flow of capital, the efficient flow of capital through society and um, but then I think they would get really dispirited by the realization that they weren't able to in their jobs not because finance was um, bad in of itself but they weren't able to realize their their goals um, so it was interesting being in uh, this fellowship with all these different professions and being challenged on why is your work good to God um, and it kind of stripped away my uh, pride as an educator and said well I'm good because I'm helping people because that's kind of I mean, it was 
pride and it was easy to, to say that. Um, we had to be challenged to look for what is actually glorifying to God in your work. And it wasn't the answer I expected. Um, now I'm opening a spirits store. That's another added challenge because that's a very, uh, you know, it could be a very good thing. It could also be spirits, it could be a very bad thing. That they, you know, alcohol is, can be very destructive for people. So we have to look at is this glorifying to God? Is it part of a larger cultural mandate? And, uh, you know, how do you justify doing something like this when you could be teaching and helping people? So, um, personally, I think all professions are part of a larger cultural mandate, and I think some of your later questions will sure dig into why. But um, well, I mean, do you want to? Since you've kind of started down that path, how have you? Let's let's talk about the spirit shop. How have you uh, wrestled with the goodness of it, yet perhaps its detriment? Um, sure. Well, the goodness is it, um, goodness of it. Part of the fellowship we went through, we had to do a project. The big year-end project was we called it the Cultural Renewal Project, where we had to find some kind of brokenness in culture and society, and create a project to address the brokenness. Um, and it was wildly uh, inventive. There's so many different unique ideas. Uh, just as one one example, uh, one project was a guy who wanted to. Um, install certain types of uh, drinking fountains in the parks in New York City Mm -hmm. Um, because the current ones were not maintained very well the water wasn't super clean coming out they didn't function and he wanted to forget there was like some kind of a design that would encourage people to drink out of the water fountain because the more people that are drinking from the water fountain in the park the less plastic waste Mm -hmm. it was a very small thing and it's something that would make a very small dent in the environment environment, but it was the the brokenness was the the particular type of drinking fountains yeah um so that kind of trained us all to look at culture with an eye of like what's broken and how can it be fixed um as far as spirits go in birmingham in particular um i mean moderation of course is always the key anywhere um but there are people that enjoy a drink and in birmingham you have two places to go buy them you have the abc stores and you have the private package stores and we started this not really knowing what was going on with that dynamic and kind of looking at why aren't there really nice package stores. I know Chattanooga has some, Atlanta, Nashville, other markets have these really like well-designed stores with educated staff. Um, our model is H&F Bottle Shop in Atlanta and you go in there and you just want to spend all day because the people in there seem to love what they do. They help you learn and it's just, it's nice. I mean, if you feel like you're in a room like this um, and we were asking the question, why does that not exist in Birmingham? So the brokenness was kind of the experience. Hmm. Um, where it's it's not a pleasant experience and in some place, ways it can be dehumanizing. Sure. Um, so we decided to uh, address that by creating a space that was designed really well uh, where we could hire people that would, as a customer, you come in and you're at the center of it. Uh, it's a very relational, um, educational. Um, also where we can encourage moderation in the sense of if you're a private package store here, you have to make your margins through, because you buy from ABC, um, and you're competing against them. And you've, if you've ever been in a private package store here, you notice that the prices are a lot higher. So they make up those margins by encouraging, you know, like the, at the front, it'll be like all the miniatures are front and center, and they stay open till one in the morning because ABC stores close. And those are things that make them their margins, but in ways that maybe aren't as constructive to society. So our challenge was how can we make the margins that we need to make in ways that are more positive right. or at least that aren't destructive. So our goal is not going to be to be open till midnight to make money. 
when ABC stores close. We're not going to have bottom shelf products. We're not going to have miniatures and things uh, like that. We're, um, we're looking at other streams of revenue so that we can provide a service that's uh, nice, customer-centered, and um, rather than profits, rather than rather than profit-centered. Yeah, and that's right. tough because it's it's a little scary to think about. Sure. Not focusing on the profits. Sure. So I guess the to just summarize the developmental part, you might it might say for for you it looks like you're developing the free flow of capital, right? Access access to that is that. Mm-hmm. And for you, you're, well, you formerly were, um, you were serving others by training them for the future. Mm-hmm. Now you're, you're taking a creative thing. Um, well, you're not actually do the, doing the making, making yeah. of the liquor, but uh, I don't know, you're, you're giving access to it and you're, you're trying to think about how to improve upon the ways that's typically done. Yes. I guess, yeah. Um, and I can't do what I'm doing if he doesn't do what he does, too. So right. there's a lot of uh, overlap. overlap out there. Yeah. One of the things that's helped me uh, is in reading Martin Luther, um, he talks about the masks of God. Um, so uh, I guess it's when he's talking about the Lord's Prayer, you know, we say, give us this day our daily bread. And Luther observes famously, well, how does God answer that prayer? Well, he does it through the baker. Um, and, and through the farmer, right? He does it through these masks. So, so God works through, through means, right? That's the point of what he's saying. Um, and that's been helpful for me as I think about vocations out in the wider world. Um, I don't know, do you want to add anything to that? Maybe you've already sort of hit on that, but do you see yourself as uh, masking, uh, like in the way that a farmer or a baker might mask this uh, before carry out this mask of God, do you see yourself in that way, imaging God to the larger world? We're asking about the image of God, basically, yeah. and what that looks like in your yeah, vocation. I mean, I think this may or may not, you know, fit with Luther's conception of the masks of God, but I think that, you know, for me, just in the office, I mean, being with folks that you're there with, really probably more than, you know, you're spending more time together than you spend with your family, you're there for you know, 40, 50 hours a week with these folks. And um, I mean, as as things happen, as just life happens and people kind of move forward together uh, over the span of years, um, there really is an opportunity to, uh, you know, to, to be the image of God to folks just in your very immediate uh, vicinity at work. And so, you know, for me, I'm very type A, I walk at a very fast clip, especially at the office. Um, I, you know, usually almost bowl people over when I'm going around corners, but, you know, I've really tried to be more disciplined about if somebody is just obviously hurting, I mean, if they've gotten a bad medical diagnosis or something's going on with their kid, you know, I mean, to really pause, force myself to pause and say, you know, hey, um, can I talk with you about this? And, you know, can I pray with you uh, about this? And I, I don't, you know, I don't talk about my faith every day at work, but in those instances where people are hurting, um, what I found is that if you actually take the time to, you know, silence your phone, um, you know, leave whatever it is that you have on your to-do thing next and say, 
okay, I'd like to actually take the time to walk with you at least for a few minutes through this. Mm-hmm. Those are the times when people are most open to, um, you know, that question of, hey, can I, can I pray for you? And um, especially in kind of those points of, you know, just real felt need um, where I have actually paused enough to connect with that, I've never had somebody tell me, no, I don't want you to pray for me. Um, it's always been, you know, yes, that's, that's something that I need. Right. So a real pastoral. You, you in a sense, a, yeah. And I'm not very pastoral in my, you know, personal makeup. But I mean, <laughs> in some senses, it's like, okay, you know, God, I'm God's man right there. So whether or not I feel like I'm the right person for it or not, I mean, mm-hmm. he's put me there. Um, and, you know, if, if I ask him to, he'll equip me to be pastoral in those kind of moments. Yeah. Any thoughts from you on that? On yeah. imaging God, uh, the masks of God? Yeah, I don't, I don't have a divinity degree. Um, sure. But some of the theology that has kind of influenced me this way that really helped me stop being prideful about education. Um, as I heard a speech at a lecture by as a um, Canadian theologian, named J. Richard Middleton, and he was talking about Psalm 148, which says, you know, um, the mountains, pray, praise God, all you mountains, praise God, all you deep, all, you, all these things in nature. And he said, how do the mountains praise God? How, do, how does the seas praise God? And he said, they praise God by being mountains. They praise God by being the oceans. And we see that when you go to Colorado and you see the mountains, you, you see the glory there. And he says, so what does that mean for us as humans? How do we praise God? Then we praise God by just being humans. Mm-hmm. And so then the challenge was to answer the question, what does that mean then to be human? And he goes back to the cultural mandate that you talked about, where he says the thing that makes us human is that we work. We were designed to till and keep the garden. That was part of the mandate, till and keep the garden. We were to develop culture, um, build things, create things. Uh, you see in, I think this is post-fall, but in Genesis, I think two or three, where they talk about the different, you know, the Tubal Cain was like the, the father of tools, and someone else was the father of the music makers, and you see these different segments of society starting to develop. So Middleton just suggests that we praise God by working, and not by working in a way that benefits the earth, but just by working, period. So as, as long as we are working in a way that glorifies God, by doing our work well, then we are praising God. And it occurred to me at that point that with, with, as a teacher, you know, I'm sitting here thinking, I'm doing good, I'm praising God by helping these kids, you know, flourish in life. But in that, there's room for me to not pay attention to my actual lesson plan or the test that I hand out. I might, and I think, it, I really do believe it's as simple as like, I might give the students a test that's just really poorly designed on the page. The fonts are bad and it's not lined up well. And that's a more chaotic experience for them than it needs to be if I spend a little bit of extra time making the, the page look neat. Mm-hmm. Um, that's doing your work well, not because it has an added benefit, because it's, that's what the work calls for. You know, there are certain farmers have certain rules about the way to farm for the best productivity. You know, bankers have, you know, certain practices that can make the capital flow through society a little bit more efficiently and, um, and things like that. So for me, I do see them as masters of God, but not because there's a necessary end that's a benefit to society, but because we are just working as long as we're doing good work in and of itself. And I think that we are masking God and imaging him back to right. creation. 
So I think you're beginning to hit on something that I'd like to draw out. Um, as Christians, um, and I know I honestly feel like I'm gifted with evangelism, uh, but as Christians, I think the way we tend to think of the way our Christian faith intersects with our work is it's predominantly evangelizing your coworkers, right? We're to go out from church, and the good Christian part is to share the gospel with them. And I want to say that's a good thing. Uh, keep doing it. Um, I want to encourage it. Um, but let's talk about that a little bit more, because I think what you're hitting on is this modern divide between the sacred and the secular, right? So we tend to think of our work over here in the secular um, and the sacred part is when we bring in the evangelism or it's just the Sunday or it's just the praying part of our lives. Um, but you're drawing out that um, there's something more, actually. And actually, we shouldn't really divide these two into sacred and secular, but all of life is sacred. Um, do you want to say anything more about that? Uh, maybe address this kind of typical concern or this typical notion of the Christian thing to do is just to evangelize your coworkers. You want to speak to that at all? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, I guess I've had a couple of opportunities over 17 years to, uh, you know, share very explicitly the gospel with um, coworkers. It's typically after lots and lots of time kind of in the trenches. Uh, actually, the most recent time was after 20 miles on the Appalachian Trail with one of my coworkers, you know, sitting around the campfire. Um, so, you know, I think that the where you talk about the divide between sacred and secular, um, to me where that really breaks down in the day-to-day -day is just in prayer because, um, you know, as I sit down in the morning and I'm like one of these Franklin Planner people that has like everything written out and uh, I'm still analog. I've got my actual book that's got what's going on in the day to day. And I try to remember to pray through each of those meetings um, that I have scheduled uh, and, you know, even some of the tasks that I'm just going to take on. And I think doing so, number one, just makes me more aware of the presence of God throughout the day. Um, and number two, I mean, I'm really asking him to show up. I mean, there are times when, you know, I'll say to God, look, I mean, I'm going to a meeting with this person. We're going to be at complete loggerheads with one another. You know, I don't know how, but please help us to come to some sort of common ground and figure this out together. And it's just amazing when I pray how some of that happens. Um, and I think, too, I mean, successes are one thing, but, I mean, failures, uh, in work, you know, is one of the biggest areas to me of just um, kind of living out faith at work because, I mean, number one, it doesn't, I mean, you can fail and it doesn't define you because you're a child of, you know, the king of the universe. Um, but then, you know, number two, I mean, just praying and talking to God about it and saying, you know, Lord, this is so disappointing. Help me get a, you know, kind of your vision for what's going on. Help me to trust you in it. Help me to have hope beyond just, you know, kind of this thing that I was working toward for months and months that ultimately fell apart. And uh, and so I think in all of those moments, you know, inwardly, and I have to think too, with some outward markers, you know, there is this breakdown between, um, you know, here's my life with God over here and here's my work life over here. Yeah. Okay. 
I think that's the, the difficult thing is that split, right? Where you do, you put your work life, work life over here and your spiritual life uh, over here. You know, and I think it's easy to believe, you know, God, God doesn't really care about finance. I should be on the mission field. Or God doesn't care about engineering. I should be on the mission field. Um, I, I personally, I don't, I don't think that's true because God created everything before the fall. Everything was created good. And before the fall, there would, there would have eventually, had we developed without the fall, there still would have been a need for economics and finance. Like as the world population grew, people would have had to exchange and trade. It would have been done a lot more efficiently, of course, but there was a need for that. All of that stuff was built into creation. Uh, the arts um, was built into creation. Um, and so all of those are good in and of themselves. So why would we think God doesn't really care about this? Um, and if we can kind of combine those buckets and not say, here's my spiritual life and here's my work life, but it's all together because God cares about all of it, yeah. then I think it makes it easier um, to kind of stop thinking in terms of like, you know, the really spiritual people or the pastors in the ministry. I mean, you're kind of on the A-team right now, Brandon, because you're in the ministry, right? Right. Um, right. And then underneath that, you've got your helping profession. So you guys are really, you know, not quite the A-team, but you're... You know, doing really good work, and then everything else is kind of below that is important to God. But if you level it all out, it's all equally important to God. Yeah. Um, and I think too, just to kind of play off what Steve said, I do think that part of that spiritual spiritual over here work over here is that we don't bring the spiritual into the work. Uh, you know, we we pray about spiritual growth for our kids and things like that, but we don't necessarily pray over the work itself. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's I think an important thing to not have that divide down the middle right yeah medical and education it's typically the way we think of a pastoral ministry or christian explicitly christian and medical and educational yeah uh stuff definitely gets the next level and then the rest is kind of well you're just working right yeah. that's um well i could go on with questions i want to open that up to you guys uh but really quickly uh i know you brought something Mm -hmm. uh, do y'all have any uh, any particular resources that have been helpful for you that you'd want to share with them just that have been helpful for you? Yeah, I would just say John chapter 15. Um, you know, I, I tend to think when I go back and reread it that Jesus at least had a little bit, um, you know, our work life in mind when he was speaking about, you know, the vine and the branches and, you know, especially abiding uh, in the vine and abiding in his love and you know, work is, uh, the, the flip side of the Genesis passage is God gave them this command, but then after the fall, I mean, it was tinged with futility. I mean, there was this painful toil element to it. And so, you know, work life uh, after the fall is, you know, it can be great, but it also is almost always there's an element of futility and an element of interpersonal friction that goes along with it. And so... I mean, for me, that component of just abiding in Christ in the day-to-day -day is really, um, in a lot of weeks, it's what gets me through the week to, uh, to the end of the week without just falling into cynicism and, uh, and so forth. So, I mean, I'm lucky to be right across the street from Advent, so I'll come over here sometimes on a Wednesday for midweek communion, and in a lot of weeks, I feel like just receiving the grace of God in communion or you know in scripture or prayer or whatever is what 
gets me through that week. Yeah, and I would add there's a there there is a divide. I believe there's a like a polarity, but we've made it between the spiritual and the secular, the sacred and the secular. I think the true opposition is between is are we doing this in accordance with God's design or in opposition to God's design? So I don't want to say when you elevate like all professions is equally important to God. That doesn't mean you can do anything in any profession and you're pleasing God. It's are you engaging in are you teaching in accordance with God's design or in opposition to it? Are you farming in accordance to God's design in opposition and because of the fall we absolutely are probably more often than not in opposition to God's design and that's why the John 15 is yeah definitely important because you've got to continually be plugged into um, the spirit and and connected through prayer and, and stuff to to make sure that you're operating in accordance with God's design and not not against this so it's definitely vital to to have those practices in your work what was it like teaching the, the Jewish? It was amazing. So we had every Friday we had um, a Shabbat service. Um, it was their prayer service. And the longer I was there, the more I was like, you know, and I'm going through this fellowship at the same time. And so I'm learning all these things that are revolutionary to me. And I'm like, oh, this is a new form of Christianity that people would be really excited about. And, and I'm hearing our, our rabbi speak on Fridays. And I'm like, Oh, I think this is just kind of baked into their faith. This is like no big deal. Because I would share these things I was learning with him. And he'd be like, yeah, like no big deal. Because it was so fundamental. So in a lot of ways, I felt like I got to kind of rediscover uh, my roots. It was was a really neat experience. That has been the thing I miss most about New York, having moved back here. I had every Friday, I had a prayer service. Um, That, you know, Jewish prayers were singing in Hebrew, but I had the translation. And it's the same sequence and so it was that rhythm that every Friday and getting out of that rhythm kind of like you go into communion on Wednesdays those spiritual rhythms are so important to kind of maintaining a balance and, and not having that anymore has been a little bit disorienting but it, it was a really great experience well uh, thanks guys any any uh, any questions or thoughts y'all want to bring up in the five minutes or so we have remaining I got the should I pass out the say yeah, serious quote. When you were talking about um, work and the fall and I'm not to paraphrase, but <laughs> what you were just saying earlier. I'm always struck by how um, you know the curse in the garden for women was birth pains and for men was you have to toil the earth. And those are kind of the women our biggest blessings and our biggest curses, our biggest idols. Mm-hmm. You know, and as a mother, you know biggest blessings to my children <laughs> yeah it's we if we elevate it too much and that becomes our identity then it, it's a curse you know it, like our identity is my identity should be daughter of the lord your identity should be a son of the lord not you know a businessman or like no matter how well you're doing at it or whatever and i just think it's cool that god took those two things there's going to be our biggest thorns on our sides or biggest blessings, you know. But articulating that well. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a that's big part we didn't really even touch on, honestly, is the idolatry of our, our work. Right. Yeah. We, we talked about that a little bit. Um, I mean, just real briefly, you know, for me, just doing things with excellence um, is a way to serve God and honor Him. But... The temptation there is to do it for the praise and recognition of other people, and that absolutely can become an idol. And so, 
for me, periodically, God has taken that away. You right. know, I failed at a big project or something, and it's been so corrective just in the way that I think about my work and relearning some humility and having the idols kind of toppled. So. Right. And if you take a blessing that he gave you, and if you raise it up to your pride, you will focus on that, and that's, that's when it becomes an idol if we're focusing on the gift the and good the gift giver. instead of God. Yeah. 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 And if, you, if you're in that position where you are working for the praise or whatever, um, you'll be willing to compromise the principles of excellent work right. to maintain that, whereas really being rooted in Christ frees you to work excellently because that's not, you know, that's not your identity is your work. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Yeah, I was just going to say, it's, it, you really see how it connects with, I mean, just the, the summary of the law, to love God and to love others, right? The gospel has freed us, um, freed us from uh, being curved in on ourselves to, to love God and to serve others. And what we're, what we're teasing out is that our vocations are, are sort of the pathways by which we do that, right? Uh, and teasing that out in all its creational goodness, right? Um, did, did you want to share this or yeah. read this out loud? This was the, when I went through the fellowship in New York, this was the passage that became kind of the centerpiece for me. Uh, Dorothy so for, Sayers. Yeah, I was going to say, okay. for the recording, uh, this is by Dorothy Sayers, Why Work? Sorry. Yeah, yeah this, no, that's right. This was originally a speech she gave in 1942 um, talking about work and why work matters. And she wrote, uh, And nothing has the church so lost her, her hold on reality as in her failure to understand and respect the secular vocation. She has allowed work and religion to become separate departments and is astonished to find that as a result the secular work of the world is turned to purely selfish and destructive ends and that the greater part of the world's intelligent workers have become irreligious or at least uninterested in religion. But is it astonishing? How can anyone remain interested in a religion which seems to have no concern with nine-tenths of his life? The church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him not to be drunk and disorderly in his leisure hours and to come to church on Sundays. What the church should be telling him is this, that the very first demand that his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables. And so I do think there in that, I mean, that was 1942. I do think there's sort of a failure of the church as an institution to promote that. The church has kind of helped maintain that sacred, secular yeah. um, divide. But that that doesn't work. Make, even making the good tables is not going to work if you're not rooted in, in Christ first and foremost. So your question I think is very kind of at the core of all of this is where, where is your identity? It seems like the longer we get away from it, the more stri- the more difficult it's going to be to bring them together and the further we're yeah. moving forward. I'm an artist and um, when I went back to like to art really kind of full time two or three years ago. I felt really selfish for it. And um, anyway, I paint a lot of cathedrals and architectural churches. And looking back, I think that that was my, well, not to get all artsy farts or anything, but it was like my way of literally glorifying God through this, what I felt was selfish, like taking a pay cut, like, you know, time away from my kids and family to pursue this. And, um, I don't know, I think I just processed this like a few months ago. I mean, like literally, that was my way of literally glorifying God is painting a church. And um, anyway, I mean, I've learned I can paint other things and glorify Him as well. But it's funny that that, uh, that I really just processed that. The whole yeah. series came out of that. Like, still got to focus on Him. Hmm. 
Well, uh, Steve and Chris, thanks so much for sharing with us uh, and helping me a lot think through this. Um, and guys, thanks for listening in on our conversation. Um, they're up here if you want to talk to them. I also have two books, so two goodies. Um, if you've not read it, uh, if you take it, you have to read it, but I bought them specifically to hand out in this class. So uh, this is by Gene Edward Veith, a Lutheran uh, theologian. It's called God at Work. And of course, he's well-known, Tim Keller, pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church, Every Good Endeavor. Um, so uh, if two people uh, want something to read, I hope that you'll take them. Um, thanks so much, guys. Yes, yeah. yeah. What's the spirit's doing?